This is the Secrets We Share podcast, a show about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and the left and rights of mental health care in Australia. Here's your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Secrets We Share, brought to you by Secret Keeper Counselling, where we talk all things mental health with clients and clinicians. I'm Francis Carlton, and I am the Secret Keeper. As usual, this is the trigger warning. There may be some tears, laughter, some learning, maybe a little bit of profanity. Maybe. So you've been warned. Make yourself a cup of tea. Sit back and relax as I talk to Yvonne. And she's going to share some secrets today. Welcome, Yvonne. Hello, Francis. Hey. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me into your amazingly, just the most relaxing, blissful space. Isn't it lovely? It absolutely it's is. It's a beautiful space. We'll talk about the creation of your space a little bit later on. I want to start by asking you to describe yourself in three words. Um, okay, so I have three words and they are enthusiastic, passionate and driven. They weren't the first words you thought of though. No, they weren't. Um, my first words that I thought of was uh, work in progress. Hmm. And then I thought of life is action research. I thought, no, that's four words. So then I sent a text out to my children and I said, can you describe me in three words without swearing? <laughs> and so that's what they came back with. Um, and interestingly, yeah, that's what they all kind of same, same words. Wow. How many children do you have? Um, I, well, six there's a story that's six yeah. children and 13 grandchildren. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. a big family. It is. And we've been very, very blessed because even though they've all moved away from home and been overseas and they've all re, as they've got older and married and children, they've all located within about <laughs> seven k's of where we are. Right. Mm. So we're in suburban Brisbane. We are. We're right on the edge of the city. We're yeah. only three, I think, four k's from the city. Right. Okay. So to have such a, an oasis is quite remarkable. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The garden is our, um, our joy. Mm. 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 And, of course, being in this lovely, warm, humid climate you've got quite some remark some remarkable plants out in your garden as well so i think what we'll, one of the things we'll do is i'll take a couple of photographs and share them on the blog for, oh, for, for the for the for the garden because it's just it, it's such, such a beautiful relaxing space and your work um your work is that relaxing space is actually required for your work tell us a little bit about what you <sighs> what your chosen so, field okay my chosen field hmm so um, I'm a social worker who, and I also, uh, well, I did an undergraduate in counselling, mm. then social work, and then I went back and did a Masters of Counselling because um, that is where my passion uh, lies and in social work as well. Mm. And so everything that you see here, I had a, a vision or a plan or a, um, a goal that I was going to be in private practice and everything that you see here is intentionally designed and to to give um, um, people a real space mm. and sense of feeling in nature. And it was interesting because I went to a talk a, a, a year or so ago and I was listening to a gentleman talking about um, the Islamic framework for mental health and he was saying that in Syria... There's a, a mental hospital in the middle of the city and it has water, uh, water features and plants and art and it's just made into this beautiful space because it's about heart. It's not about head. Mm. It's about heart. Mm. And um, I just, yeah, I, 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 that's what I, I think. Mm. Mm. So does that inspire your space, that is Islamic framework? Uh, very much. Well, I, I, it resonated with me a mm. lot. I, I, people, I feel people, I see people visibly calm. Mm. When they come in, they see a water feature, they hear running water, they see plants. 
I have a dog called Wen. Well, we have three dogs, but mm. have one dog in particular, Wednesday. And every now and again, I'll bring her down as well because she has that same influence on people. And it's um, just, you know, have people feel like they can connect back to just being. Mm. Yeah. And in your work in palliative care, that sense of just being is very important? I think so. I think that at the end of the day, people want to go back to who they are and they want to be able to reconnect mm. and connect with who they are and um, and what they've done and what they're leaving. Yeah, reconnection, mm. that soul work, mm. I guess. Soul work. Soul work. What does that look like? I guess the words that I used before, uh, reconnecting and and discovering who they are in a way that they uh, have compassion and kindness towards themselves, that they can see whatever has happened in their life that brought them to where they are and that, mm. you know, we're good people. Mm. Mm. You didn't start in palliative care. Where did you Where did you start your your career as a social oh, worker? Oh my gosh! Well, I've had Counselor. quite a few um, different pathways, but it's uh, looking back across time, they've all led to where I'm at now. So I did start um, my life as a nurse, and I was not a good nurse. <laughs> Um, because I was, I every single thing that I saw, I immediately developed the symptoms, and um, it's a very uh, empathic. Oh, well, I didn't actually. I, I was just, yeah. you know, oh my god, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't do well with that side of it, and I didn't do well with vomit, and I didn't do well with anything like that. Mm. But what I did do well, and what I think. And I still get teary when I think about it, but um, I nursed um, quite a, a number of people that had the numbers, the um, the tattoo. Oh wow! From the, being in camps. Um, in camps, and so their journey in hospital and their end of life was very important mm. for me. Mm. Um, and so to have survived so much in that yeah. it was about that real dignity I'm hearing yeah, giving them dignity, that real dignity in the last moments and dignity and kindness and holding and um yeah holding mm. Mm. and is that what led to your to your change away from nursing so it well I gave, I left nursing because um everybody around me begged me to because I'd ring people up at two o'clock in the morning with, um, you know, worrying that I was about to expire from something. Um, so that, <laughs> that actually was, and 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 I guess then it was a bit of a, obviously, uh, well not obviously, but I have my own story, mm. um, which also I think impacted on me a lot, and um, so I also probably because of that landed up as a. Um, a married and divorced at a very young age with children and um, uh, going through my own trials and tribulations and but always having, I guess, a passion for um, people and justice and that we all have a story and that no one can be judged um, and so I guess that's always been with me and I kind of, I didn't go, I went into, um, I started off, oh gosh, where do I start? I met a lot of wonderful, wonderful women, especially social workers and counsellors as I was in my teenage years and in my 20s who I probably, I wonder if I'd have survived those years if I hadn't met those people mm. um, who really... Uh, inspired, oh, really found the strengths in me 
and uh, encouraged me. And so I, I guess I've never forgotten those people. And uh, I think I first started in youth work. I fell into it and went and got a certificate in youth work. And from there, I became quite uh, passionate working with young people and um, and probably a lot of anger from my youth came out, but I used it, I think, in quite a good way. So you channeled that power I for good. I did channel it. And it was, you know, yeah, you know, I'll help you do this and we'll do that and whatever. So but very much I've experienced it, you don't need to as well. Well, just... I've, I know what this is like and don't you let these people push you around. Yeah. <laughs> you have rights as yeah. well. So, mm. um, and then from there I went into, I kind of moved into counselling and loved it. I also did uh, lifeline telephone counselling to start with mm. for a few years just to, um, I just, I guess, wanted to see what it was like before I started mm to go further. Talk about jumping in both feet. Yeah, well, I think also it's that stuff I said before about action research. I think that every single thing that I've done has been test it, see what it's like, does it work for me, Has mm. where am I sitting with this, what's happening, do I take another step? Mm. And I think that everything um, that I do has been like that. So, yeah, so the Lifeline Counselling, then into uni. Again, very blessed. I went to Southern Cross University in Lismore for my first, for my degree there and mm. had amazing, radical, wonderful lecturers that just, uh, I just felt like I was soaring. There mm. wasn't one single assignment that I didn't love. Mm. So um, that was really great. Yeah, mm. for, and um, and then moved into social work when I realised a little bit at that point in my life the limitations of the counselling. Okay. Social work gave me a framework. Mm. So because there's, you know, there's a little bit of possibly a little bit of confusion out there of what the differences are between social work and counselling, can you just give a little bit of uh, a little bit of an example of how social work, work is different to counselling? Where I hope I can do this justice, I will yeah. do it well. But I guess what I, what I my um, experience of social work was what I loved about it was a there's a code of conduct which is really uh, clear about how you work with people around autonomy and self determination and and um, and I guess it gives you it 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 kind of gives you an an underpinning for. It. For everything that you do, hmm. uh, it also is around a framework for practice and being able to be really clear. It offered me um, some really clear uh, theories um, that I hold dear, which is a little bit like um, it, it kind of gives me a bit of a roadmap hmm. of staying on track and being true to uh, uh, a how I work, but also on a bigger picture around that ethical. Um, profession, mm. ethics, that, yeah. Mm. And the other thing that it uh, offered me, and it's just gone out of my head, is, um, oh, gosh, it's just gone out of my head. That's right. We'll come I'll back to it. remember it in a minute. Yeah. But there was a third thing that was... Yeah. Um, and what about, the st what about the types of work that you do with social work versus counselling? Social work can, is, in, is and I guess this is the lovely part of the degree, oh, I was about to say it's a brown systems theory. Okay. And, <laughs> yeah, and that micro through to macro and how, and I think this is one of the, uh, the things that I think are different with counselling, is that um, I think as a counsellor, when I was a counsellor, when people were sitting in front of me, it was that person in front of me in this space. Mm. With, a, with a social work background, I see that person sitting in front of me in that space, but I see all of the things that are outside of that space. Okay. So the family system, where they sit in their family system, where they sit in their uh, workplace, where they mm. sit in the broader community, how 
all of the other systems impact on that person, mm. uh, whether that be financial, whether it be whether they have a home to go to, whether it be, you know, and then uh, the political system that we sit in. Mm. Um, so I guess I see that and I understand, I believe that uh, whatever work you do in that room, someone has to be able to w- walk out of this room and function mm. in the world. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's also how you build people or help them mm. or support them to live in the world. Mm. Um, yeah, I think they're be. I think they're getting much better at including that in counselling training mm. now. Um, I know that when I did my counselling education, we did social psychology, which was very much included all of that okay. place in the world. It was a it was a subject all of its own. It had assignments. It's um, it was it was it also looked at the broader context of where we sit within the world world. So mm. it was little things like you know just because you know um, I use the sort of you know the extreme examples, you know maybe a country's eating dogs. We don't do that here. It's not socially acceptable here. We can't impose our our yeah. beliefs on another culture. So it w- that was one of the things that we talked about um, quite extensively, actually. That was one of the ones where I started crocheting in class because some of the views of some of the other people in the class were a bit kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure how you're going to go out into the world and be a counsellor, but hey. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. anything outside of that very sort of general sort of that um, very narrow window of what we see as being acceptable, anything outside of that for some of these, some of these uh, students was, yeah. was, was quite horrific. And, and at one point I just knew that my inner Tourette's was, my inner Tourette's was screaming at me and I just bent down and started doing my crochet just to keep myself under control. <laughs> I, think I, knitted, also- I knitted my lecturer a scarf that, 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 that term. <laughs> I think it's also, I, I believe that you ask a question about mental health um, later in the interview, but yeah. I, I think it's the same with mental health and, and that system as well. Yeah. And I noticed that um, psychology now uh, introducing a new kind of framework uh, for practice. I can't remember what it's called, threat. Uh, it's got three words. Anyway, I can't remember what it is, but I, and they're introducing this as, you know, this is the way to work now. And I had a read of it and it's great. But it is social work. It's how mm. social workers have always thought, mm. you know, and, and and I guess around labels and, um, yeah, just how systems impact on people. Mm. Systems that we don't even know exist mm. in yeah. society. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the way things are. I feel like I should be doing this. Who tells you you should be doing yeah. this? Well, it's just the way it is. Is it, though? <laughs> and I guess just how yeah. oppressive that is for people. I remember being a young woman with two little children living in Housing Commission, being at the mercy of Centrelink, which I know that, you know, yes, being grateful that we grateful that we have that system, Um but it also does a lot of harm, mm. and um, and I just remember being that person, and I, and and I remember being how I was treated, mm. and how difficult it was to get out of that, mm. and uh, yeah. I um I, I I a few years ago, about six years ago, I had a when I first moved um, down to Canberra from Sydney, I had a period of six and a half months where I was unemployed, mm. and had to resort to um, and I used to use the word resort because it really was, uh, I had to resort to using sent going on going on Centrelink for a, for a little while, and every time I had to go to the office, I had a I had a sort of like a little a little a little internal bet with myself about how long it would be before somebody was ejected for calling one of the staff a see you next Tuesday. Yeah. And usually within about 15 minutes of me being in there, somebody was ejected. And the thing about it for me was it was, it was not the, it wasn't the staff member's fault. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the person who was doing the court name calling. It was the it was the system. It was the way that they were dehumanised by the system, the way they just became a number 
and that their, you know, their situation wasn't as far as Centrelink was concerned, was un- mm. it was not unique, um, but to them it was. So, and yeah. the hurdles that are put in front of people. Oh, huge. And also I, I think the... Um, this narrative that that people believe uh, around people that that access Centrelink, which is total bullshit. Oh, totally. Yes. And um, yeah, so I guess I carry that, and and that's another reason social work has been, as far as advocacy and um, being able to have a voice where other people may not have a voice. Sometimes mm. it's been good. It's been a yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I haven't done social work, but since I've been doing employee assistance program work, right. um, I do a lot of that. I do a lot mm. of that. I get people to advocate for themselves, yes. but I provide them with so much information and provide them with information about services that they had absolutely no idea that they even existed yeah. and didn't know where to even start looking for help. So it's... and. I'm able to do that because I volunteered um, at a homeless shelter for about six months when I was when I was on my Centrelink. I didn't right. have anything else to do, so I volunteered at a at a sort of a, um, homeless shelter f- place where they fed people and cl- gave them new clothes and washing and mm. food and things like that. So I learned a lot in that six months, which I don't think I would have. I wouldn't have a clue if I hadn't have done that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's, but very much social work based. Yeah. In that situation, yeah. I had no idea what I was doing when I first got there. <laughs> the other <laughs> thing I learned, yeah. But the other thing I learned there was, was was really interesting. I had a lot of clients that had schizophrenia and who were recovering, who who were on the on on the path, you know, out from being quite quite bad, and who were mm. on medication and. They'd come and speak to me in the lounge and I'd sit and they'd start, they'd sit down and they would start by telling me all of the drugs that they were on and their diagnosis. And I would stop them and say, I'm, it's okay. You don't have to tell me this. I'm, I'm actually interested in how you're doing today. Yeah. And I had one guy just say, he actually burst into tears and said, nobody's actually ever asked me how I am today. Yeah. So again, another system. Yeah. That medical medical model of mental health. Yeah. Oh, I've had people here who say who tell me the diagnosis and, and so you won't want to be seeing me because I'm this and I'm that. I'm I'm bipolar or not bipolar, um uh, borderline personality disorder. And uh, you know, it's a label. It might be a helpful label. Some of these labels are helpful, but mm. at the end of the day you we're just two people. Mm. And um, we're just two people mm. getting to know each other mm. and seeing what we can, how we can work through this, how we can work through the stuff that gets in the way for you. Mm. That's mm. all. You're asking for help. I'm offering help. Yeah, supporting mm. them to find a way through, I think, mm. more than helping. Do you not think that supporting is helping? Yeah, I guess it's that thing, though, that, you know, that stuff around missionaries and the whole helping thing and there's something about the power in that that I, it doesn't sit comfortably for me. Um, so I think I said to you at the beginning I like to go in just open and without mm. a lot of knowledge about prior stuff because it's really getting to know people mm. and getting to know them mm. not and and then about how i can support them to find their way through this so going back to that word help do you not think having somebody sitting on a couch mm. who's come to you do you not think being present and supporting and being present to their mm. story is helping them. Look, I'm sure, yes, yes. Mm. And I'm also aware that there still is a power difference. Mm. Um, there is. I guess I just feel more comfortable okay. <laughs> <laughs> with, with the use of a different word. And, and I guess it's just about that, um, oh, just that awfulness of, um, yeah, 
sometimes just the word help has some, um, I think. Language is such a powerful, powerful thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, um, I was driving around with a friend of mine yesterday and there was this big van, big sort of white van, and on the side of it, it had all these, all these words. And the ones that really stuck out to me was domiciliary care. And my friend read it out and he said, what, what is that? And I went, well, it sounds like home help to me. And he's like, well, what, what is domiciliary? I said, well, I'm thinking possibly domicile, which equals house or home. <laughs> and then care is kind of like, so it just sounds like a really fancy, confusing way of saying home help. Yeah. So I wonder why, I mean, I know we we never know the answer, but why would you use such a complex term for something that is so powerful and helpful? Home help. It's a, language is a, is, is, is fascinating to me. Well, language is a gatekeeper as well, isn't it? And uh, you can keep people in or out with the language you use. Mm. And I find... In my work, yeah, you hear language all the time that why not just use language that people can understand mm. and that they can get their head around and mm. and they can work with that rather mm. than, you know, you kind of wonder whose needs are being met. Well, that was the thing about the domiciliary care. It's like, well, who, how many people are actually going to even understand yeah. what domiciliary, how many people can say it? <laughs> it took me a couple of attempts. Mm. So it's, it's it, it, as you say, gatekeeper. It keeps people out. Mm. Is this something that they actually don't want people to use this service? We provide it, but we don't want you to use it really. Or, or we don't know, want you to, or we don't need you to know as much as we do. Mm. So there's that power difference again. Yeah, it keeps people compliant and it yeah. keeps people doing, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting language one, isn't does, it? I think. Yeah. 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 So your your work now in the palliative care, you mentioned earlier on that you did this work with people who had, you know, probably had their youth um, in camps. Mm. You're now working in palliative care. Is palliative care just cancer? No. No. So what is palliative care? So palliative care is, um, gosh, uh, caring for people with life-limiting conditions so that they have quality of life. Mm. So I think, yeah, some people choose to die at home. Some people choose to die in hospital. And it's about how the support that you can give to those people and their families so that their end of life is the best that it can be Mm. for them. So I noticed that recently there's been a a rise in death doula. Mm. Yeah. Is that something that you, that resonates with you or Mm. away from, away from, there's there's that round language again? I think it's got a lovely, there's a fabulous gentleman, uh, Australian gentleman called uh, Michael Babato, and he was a palliative care consultant for many, many years. Um, and I think he may be retired now, but he was lecturing down at the University of Wollongong and he uh, is an, uh, a real advocate for uh, death doula, doulas, mm. and actually has some beautiful books Midwifing the dying is um, one, or midwife. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a a very lovely uh, choice of profession. Mm. Mm. If people wanted to do that, yeah. Mm. So it's about that sort of that again, supporting people and giving them the the, the most comfortable and the most fulfilling. I, I I think that the word hold the space can be a bit wanky. Yeah, and yet, <laughs> sorry. No, but, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just impressed that you said wanky. It's just <laughs> aw- awesome. <laughs> it is just got that little bit. Oh, yeah, it's a bit cringeworthy. <laughs> but that, yeah. I guess, says it. Yeah, you're holding space for mm. people, whatever that means <laughs> for them. 
We can hear my dogs pottering yeah. around upstairs. And they were just coming down the stairs, actually. Fee. <laughs> Fee's going to investigate. She's going to defend me with all of her might. I have it. So those of that, those of you that are new to listening um, may or may not know that I tend to travel with um, a chihuahua in a bag, and she does get very defensive occasionally. <laughs> and my dogs are incredibly jealous that uh, yes. she's down here, yes. and they're not allowed down. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the thing is that you know um, your dogs, um, their, their their heads are bigger than well, my dog. I was dog. going to say they might actually <laughs> just eat her in one little gulp. Yeah. <laughs> She's very little. <laughs> so, um, lost track. Thanks, Fee. Well done for a little bit of a grumble there. Um, death doula. Yeah. Language. Do you, would you describe yourself as a death doula, or are you? Are you uh, are something doing my children work? call me when they? Um, I think so. It's an interesting space in the sense that I have my own thoughts on being called a counsellor in palliative care, which is why I love private practice so much, mm. because most people, when they're dying, are not asking for a counsellor or they're not asking for uh, uh, couples counselling. Yeah. They are there trying to navigate something very different. And I and I think that that there's a lot of responsibility and care to provide what people want, not what you think people need. Right, yes. And it's a time that can be quite traumatic for people, not so much death and dying, but we live in a Western society that doesn't um, see death and dying a lot, even though it's part of life. Mm. Everybody Um, does it. Everybody does it. But it can be... uh, traumatic and a very huge time for people Um, and I guess it's about being able to go into any person's home and not uh, be the doer Mm. and they haven't asked for counselling so it's really Mm. an an interesting space to navigate Mm. so that whole death doula thing I think because death doulaing is about um, yeah the support the care the caring for people's heart and soul Mm. and it probably has a yeah just a so you work with the individual and their family or just with the individual work with individual and their family whoever in a in a family or whoever is in that person's uh network support network right that so it can um, be quite extended it can be Hmm. uh it, it can be it it depends who is who who is a person that is identifying that they're not managing this, mm. um, and I think that the earlier um, that you can be involved with that with that person and family, um, the better. Mm. Yeah, and and you haven't asked, but I I just am throwing in that um, one of the reasons that I became was is doing this work is because we had a, uh, a daughter-in-law who died in 2004 and that journey was for our son and, um, and, and the family was very, very difficult. Mm. We didn't know what we were doing and, uh, and there were parts of that that I said to my, I didn't actually know what palliative care was then back in 2004. Wow. And I just used to say to my husband, I don't know if there's a job doing this stuff, but when this is all over, I'm finding that job right. to help families because we were just, um, I can't stop them barking at no. them. <laughs> I can yell. <laughs> Wednesday, no. it's because she can see the dog. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's all right. Oh. <laughs> Was this going to interfere no, no. with this? She'll stop. She'll stop. <laughs> or my my husband might notice eventually and come and bring her inside. Yeah. 
<laughs> all Sorry. Right. Yeah, so you found the job, 2014, well, and I you did. found the job. I, uh, and believe it or not, before that, um, I was working for Centrelink. Oh, right. So you've been through your journey with Centrelink <laughs> as, as a participant. Well, I, I actually, and then you started yes, working with them. Which is why I went to work for them because right. I... I really wanted to um, have that experience of of right. of being on the inside of it. Right. So that's why I went to work for Centrelink, and I did that for a few years, and and then a position came up for an organisation in Brisbane that's a Buddhist um, organisation, and uh, which I um, that whole spiritual aspect is very um, close to my heart and uh, so I applied for the position and mm. um, was successful and that has been my, that was my start with truly working in palliative care mm. and I absolutely adore it. I find it, yeah, there isn't, yeah, I just find it the most amazing work and um, so I now, uh, I, my aim, I think I said at the beginning, was to have a private practice. So I initially started this this work in April and I manage the two. I do um, palliative care work for another organisation, a different one this time on the south side of Brisbane. Mm. And I also work in private practice and work in grief, loss and bereavement. Mm. Um and I have uh, a lot of work in grief, loss and bereavement, but I also find that I have a lot of, uh, well, uh, people that come with different types of grief mm. that not necessarily around death and dying, mm. around, you know, tra- transitions, life transitions. Because that was going to, that, that, that leads me nicely into the next question of that, you know, there's this, there's this sort of conception that um, grief is when we lose someone. What else can we grieve for? Oh, my gosh. Well, that's a little bit of a, a never-ending question, isn't it? But I guess uh, divorce, relationships, work, uh, life stages, going through middle age, children leaving home, losing a pet, um, gosh, yeah, mm. that's... I do a lot of work with wildlife carers, so. Right. Uh, but grief is actually one of the lower one of the lower things on the on the list of things that present. Um, but when when we do come across grief, it's often around disenfranchised grief, yeah. which is of course that unacknowledged grief from other people. Yeah. It's just a kangaroo. It's just a snake. It's just a. How do you do? You ever see any people mm. with sort of with with old grief that's just still there because it's never been acknowledged? Oh, all the time. And I think that grief has a lot of different faces. So I think you know, fear, anger, um, defensiveness. You know, there's a lot of lot of um, presentations that when you uh, really talk about it comes from a place of loss mm. and grieving. Mm. 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 There's, there's a, there's a, um, a meme um, going around that says, um, I've, I, I, I focused on my anger and realised it was grief. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing how everything is sort of like entwined mm. around, um, around grief. Was grief one of the one of the subjects that really fired your soul when you were studying? It, it, it yes, absolutely, and I think part of that was you know talking about being a work in progress is I guess acknowledging my own grief and how that impacted on who I was um, for a better part of my younger life, mm. and um, and realizing that that's what it was. Mm. So um, probably don't need a lot of detail, but I, uh, my parents divorced and um, my mother brought us to Australia uh, quite quickly. We didn't get an opportunity to say goodbye to 
pretty much anyone. Mm. And I also left behind a father and a whole, my whole paternal, the whole paternal side of my family pretty much and uh, didn't see anyone again until I was 40 when I went and found him through the Salvation Army. And I remember as a teenager, I used to wake up, I used to have vivid dreams and I used to wake up with a wet pillow most mornings and um, and I always used to, yeah, just wonder where where my dad was and what people were doing and, yeah, so, and, and I guess my teenage years were and my 20s were fraught with um, uh, a lot of pain and a lot of misadventure um, and I realised as I got older that that was grief. Mm. It was mm. grief. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I can see that's really sort of brought some brought some stuff to the surface. I'm very lucky because it had a wonderful, wonderful um, ending. The story had a beautiful ending. But it really has me curious um, and, in, and I enjoy because I look at uh, people who struggle with death and dying and saying goodbyes and uh, existential stuff, mm. and it's nearly always rooted in that attachment. Mm. And um, so I, I, I guess I kind of have a real uh, interest in that. And and what I remember when I was went to Heathrow Airport after finding uh, my dad, and I remember seeing this man standing in front of me and I could see his old face and his new face and they would slide mm. and uh, change. And I did that for about a week. Right. And, right. Uh, and he landed up, um, had cancer. Mm. I, f- I found him in 1999. Uh, and my husband is amazing. I packed up a little bag. I thought they might not like me, so I'll chuck in a sleeping bag in case I land up sleeping on a railway station for most of this time. And uh, my husband took care of all the kids and I went to the UK for three months and got to meet my family. Mm. And it was amazing because that was where I really um, felt like I'd come home. Mm. And my everything around my own sense of being my sense of belonging, my identity, everything just clicked. Mm. So I was very blessed. And my stepmother, um, we have a family website, family Facebook page, Mm. which is I have loads of wonderful cousins. Mm. Um, My dad died in 2007. I went over and helped to look after him. So that was such a privilege. And my stepmother rings me every single Saturday and has done for the past 20-odd years. Mm. So I'm very blessed in that regard. I know not everyone has that story, Mm. so I feel very lucky. Yeah, as you say, it's, it's it's had a wonderful ending. It's had a wonderful ending and a wonderful learning, I think, from Mm. that Mm. around how how we deal with our how we deal with grief how children deal with grief how you know how our, how identity is formed and what and how we put together the pieces mm. to make us feel internally whole mm. Mm, absolutely yeah well that brings us brilliantly to, to towards the end of um, towards the end of that went very quickly of our conversation I know it did it did <laughs> How do you um, so? As I ask all my all my all my uh, interviews, uh, this how how do you how do you see the mental health future of Australia? Mm. Uh, okay, so I I guess it depends on what lens you're looking through. Mm. Um, I think on the one hand with employment assistance programs and mental health plans, uh, that that's a great move forward. On the other hand, I think that you have to 
be in a privileged position to access those things. Mm. And we have mm. lots of doctors that don't bulk bill and they it, it, therapy and counselling is really uh, not an easy thing for people to access. No, it's not. Um, and 10 sessions, I think, is, a, is not really acknowledging um, truly mm. and that's what per, mental health is. And that's per annum. Yeah. I, I don't know what um, I don't know what the what the systems like up in Brisbane or what the wait times are like, but I know that in Canberra um, at the moment you're looking at at least five weeks before you can get in to see mm. a psychologist or a mental health plan, and then you're looking or an at an accredited mental health social worker or yeah, OT, yeah, yeah. not just psychologist. Yes. Well, mental health plan. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, but most people think, most people are under the impression that if you go to a mental health care plan, you just get a psychologist. And I most know. and most GPs will only refer to psychologists. So that's and a I very good point. That, I think that there's been a lot of, and, and I guess this is the other side of mental health as well that I was going to say is that mm. I think that the, um, the, the competition that psychology and other professions mm. are engaged in is not helpful. No. I think that um, this thing around diagnoses mm. and the DSM-5 is not helpful. No. I think I was talking at the beginning about the Islamic framework for working with mental health and how I like to work here and it's around you know, what's happening with people's heart. Mm. I'm not saying that diagnosis can't be helpful and useful and, mm. you know, there are some presentations people have. Uh, yeah, it is helpful, same mm. as medication can be mm. helpful. But I think that it's been used across the board, mm. you know, oppositional defiance disorder. Mm. Um, borderline personality disorder. ADHD, yeah, bereavement disorder. Mm. You know, we're human beings with human conditions, mm. and sometimes, and I and I think until we reach that point with mental health, the other part of that is around the othering. And I and I think othering, othering, yeah. You know, those people with mental health issues, not us, yeah. And I think that there is a huge divide there, which is one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this podcast. Right. Is, I guess, around that people that do counselling, therapy, psychology, um, psychiatry are human beings Mm. that have the same human conditions as everyone else Mm. and they've had the opportunity to work through it Mm. and do Mm. some stuff around it. That's the the difference. That's, Mm. you know... And um, I think when we other people, that's where mental health is seen, you know, in the workplace, I guess, to admit to people in your workplace, it's one thing to say you want an EA to talk to EAP, but if you would, I think a lot of people, if they genuinely said, I have some mental health issues, I think that they're putting themselves Mm. sometimes in a precarious position position in quite a lot of organizations absolutely in quite a lot of organizations absolutely um i um i do quite a lot of training for um the eaps that i that i work that i work with and one of the organizations that i went to they were offering their staff members six sessions which is quite actually quite generous for some of the eaps and but what i found amusing and sort of a little bit frustrating amusing from a funny funny sort of like this is odd like why would you do this is that the staff members had to get permission from their managers in order to access the eap right which basically and i said that i actually said this to to the leaders was then you may as well not bother even offering the eap service why would you leave yourself in that vulnerable position why are you going to say i need to see the eap and how terrible that people have to feel in a vulnerable position by saying that mental health is a bit yeah, you know. yeah, I just need to talk to something. Whereas the majority of organisations that have, the majority of the organisations that offer, all right, um, that offer EAPs, they can, people can self-refer. Yeah. They can ring up and they can make the appointment and, and the companies don't know individual details of who goes to EAP, mm. which is amazing. And then you get other organisations that offer 10 EAP sessions 
and some organisations that offer unlimited if it's work-related, which is just phenomenal. So mm. it's such a, with EAP, of course, Employee Assistance Programme, it is, you do have to have a job to do it, which is kind of, you know, the job then has to have that service which they are paying for. But it's one thing that I say to say to people, like whenever I go and do training sessions, use your EAP. It's part of your package. Yeah. If you've got access to it and you've got six six sessions, just go along and do a debrief every couple of months. Yeah. Because then you're definitely so don't wait till you're at crisis point before you actually seek mental health support. Yeah. You don't wait until you've got a broken leg or you, until your leg's festery before yeah. you go and get help. You kind of go when you think there's something wrong Mm. so I think there just needs to be so much I don't know if it's education I I don't know if it really is that but I guess changing that stigma of mental health and um and it's interesting what we have this are you okay day one day a year one day a year and I (laughs) and I and I have so many people that come in afterwards so distressed because yeah you know, their their struggle is just completely not acknowledged at any other time. That's yeah. you okay? Yeah. You know? Well, I find don't that really, really want to know. Don't, don't want to answer that. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> and that's part of the problem. People are actually quite afraid to ask the question, "Are you okay?" Because they're actually terrified that the answer is going to be no. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, that's a bit awkward. Well, now, 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 what do I do? <laughs> So let's just, let's just, you know, or if they do ask, it's like, so are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. So my thing now when somebody says to me is I'm fine, it's like, oh, so freaked out, insecure, neurotic and emotional, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about that. (laughs) I actually have clients that think that's, and they'll go, I'm fine. No, no, I actually am fine. Okay, so use another word. Uh Aha. So it comes back to that language again. Fine. Yeah, Yeah, fine. Freaked out, insecure. And you can thank um, the new Italian job with Mark Wahlberg for that one. Uh (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's brilliant. (laughs) It's just brilliant. It is. So I would like to thank you, Yvonne, for talking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It absolutely has. And I'm sure we could easily do another one of these at some point in the future. No, thank you. Thank you to my guest, Yvonne, for sharing her secrets today. And to you, the listener, for listening. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for listening to Secrets We Share. If you're interested in sharing some of your secrets, please visit our website at secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Keep an ear out for our next episode soon.